invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. Calling this the summary of the Son's ministry in Galilee. The summary of the Son's ministry in Galilee. That is really the purpose of Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. It's acting as a bridge and as a transition point. And in it, Mark gives us a summary statement about Jesus' ministry in the northern half of the chunk of Israel called Galilee. Now, summary statements can be very helpful, can't they? Summary statements, summaries can be very helpful. They give, if they're done right, they give the big idea, they give the important info in as few words usually. And, you know, when you're browsing the newspaper or maybe, you know, uh, you see something posted on Facebook or the Internet and you see the headline. If the headline is written well, if it is a good summary of what you're about to read, that's going to give you a good idea if you want to actually click and read the whole thing itself, right? That's the purpose of a, of a good headline. It's supposed to be a summary of what is going to follow. The same thing with a good concluding sentence. And I can remember my old textbooks from way back in the day, going to school in the, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, the, the, the way that you learned the important stuff was you looked for the bold words. You looked for the highlighted words. You looked for the italicized words uh, or, or underlined words. That's what you had to look for. And, and being in public education right now, I've gotten to per, uh, peruse or, or browse some of the modern textbooks, and they are so helpful because they have reviews they have summary paragraphs summary sections at the end and you don't even need to read the chapter you just you just look at the summary and it'll tell you everything you need to know it'll tell you exactly what's going to be on the text it, these summaries serve to to repeat or rephrase the big idea what what are the main thoughts what is what are the important take away takeaway points well, as I said earlier, this text functions, it serves as a summary of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's, he's been ministering in Galilee uh, for about two years. He, he occasionally goes down to Judea uh, for the feasts, but he is predominantly spending his time in Galilee, and that time is almost up. He's about to go into Judea for the last time, Things are about to get really intense. You're going to see in uh, next week's text, Jesus is, is really going fisticuffs with the Pharisees. And he's going to spend the, rem- the remainder of his time going toe-to-toe with them. He's going to spend the remaining time that he has intensifying his discipleship with, with the Twelve. And his gospel ministry will climax. It will culminate with Calvary. Now, in this text, we, we, see no, we, we see nothing new. It's a repeat. It is a summary of everything that has come to us so far. There's no new teaching. There's no new miracle. There's no new revelations, no new big wow. It's just the same old wows that we have seen time and time and time and time again. And Mark is, is utterly, utterly content 
to repeat the things that Jesus has already done. We have seen Jesus heal the masses. We have seen Jesus heal everybody who has come to him. There's not a single disease. There's not a single disability. There's not a single illness or malady or, or, or uh, any condition or any circumstance that is beyond Jesus's ability to rectify. Every single wrong has been made right when brought to Jesus. Nobody has been turned away. Nobody, not one soul, has come to Jesus seeking for mercy and left disappointed. Not one. No one left unsatisfied. No one left disappointed. Nobody Jesus was too busy for. No plea for help unheard. No circumstance. No perilous, pitiful situation uncared for ever. This text reminds us that Jesus was this rapid moving miracle of mercy machine. Steve Lawson calls him, uh, from his study on this text, he calls him a a one-man spiritual SWAT team. We've seen that throughout Mark's gospel, haven't we? We're going to see that again here. We might ask at the end of the day, or as as the late R.C. Sproul would say, in the final analysis, that that was one of his favorite things to say, in the final analysis, what did the people learn from Jesus? That's a good question to ask when you're reading through the gospels. What what have the people learned about Jesus? What, what should I, as the reader of the gospel, what should I have learned about Jesus by now? Has there, has there been a lasting impact? Of all the things Jesus has said and all the things Jesus has done and all the displays of power and authority that he's executed, is there a lasting change? What's the impact? Is there, is there a discovery? Is there a life change of eternal significance? when we see the Son of God touching the lives of men? Is there a change? This text will tell us as we examine Jesus continuing to do as his time in public ministry in Galilee is coming to a close, we see him continuing to do the same old thing that he's been doing from the beginning. And we can, we can divide this text and we can break it down into three points. Verses fifty. Three, we see the movement of Jesus. The movement of Jesus. In 50, verses 54 to the first half of 56, we see the masses of people, the throngs of people that just flock to him. As they always have. And then in the very last bit, the last half of 56, we see the miracles that he did. The undeniable miracles executed by his sheer power that he did let's read the text mark 6 53 to 56 when they had crossed over they came to the land at gennesaret and moored to the shore when they got out of the boat immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, 
they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Let's first examine the movement of the Lord Jesus in verse 53. We see, we see just the detail that he has crossed over and they, they land at Gennesaret. Now, this doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to unfold. But again, remember, this is a, this is a summary statement. What Jesus is doing here is, is a reminder that this is what he has been doing the whole time. He crosses over the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over the lake and he gets out of the boat. And when you examine this text, when you read this text in the context of his entire ministry, you see that he is always going somewhere. He is always crossing the other side, whether it's a body of land or a body of water. He is always crossing it to get to people. He is always on the move. His, his movement is rapid. His traveling, his movement is unrelenting, unceasing. It's almost restless. He is always on the move. And Mark, Mark highlights the, this feature of Jesus' ministry. He's emphasizing, he's bringing out and painting the action of Jesus' moving by, have, by commenting more about his moving and having less instances of his dialogues, less instances, less uh, recordings of his inc- specific encounters with people. We know that he had specific encounters with people, right? You see that in the other Gospels. We know that he had long teaching sessions. We know that he engaged with people and taught and discipled. But Mark wants you to see that Jesus was a man of action and that he was a man on the move. He was relentlessly on the move. He's always going and doing, always going and doing. That's because Mark, Mark likes action. He's, he's probably writing in Rome to a Roman audience, and the Roman mind loves action. It loves stuff being done, people going places, doing things, things getting done. And that is what we see Jesus doing. We see him being a man of action, a man who does things. And when this man speaks, things happen, things get done. And Mark, Mark, when he begins his gospel, he paints Jesus storming Galilee, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching the kingdom of heaven. And he, he's just storming Galilee like the U.S. Rangers stormed the beach of Normandy. He's, he's coming on the scene and he's telling people, he is calling people authoritatively to repent. He's calling people to come follow me. Drop your mat, leave your job, Come and follow me. He is a man of authority. He is a man of power. He is a man of action. And we have seen in his arsenal the the power that he has to heal absolutely any and every disease. He has the power and the authority to cast out any and every demon. He has the power and the authority to, to make provisions for an entire army with the lunch of a little boy. He could feed 25,000 people with two fish and five quafers or loaves. Jesus has the power and the right to make right every, any and every 
wrong. There's, we have seen absolutely no circumstance. We have seen no situation that is untouchable by the power of Jesus. No circumstance in life is beyond his reach. No problem is too great for his power to make right. And this has all been done in Galilee, back and forth, up and down, left and right, on this side of the lake, on that side of the lake, all over. Galilee has been the backdrop of, of all of Jesus' goings and doings. It's as one person says, Galilee is, as one person says, the great theater to Mark's narrative, to, to the narrative of the gospel. Now, we know Jesus was born in Judea. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Galilee. Galilee is where he called his disciples. Galilee is where he did the first of his miracles in Cana of Galilee. Galilee is where he would go on to do most of his miracles. Galilee, the people of Galilee, are those to whom Jesus did most of his ministering to. In Acts 1.11, when, when there's 500 people who's the, the vast bulk of his disciples... At that, in the early church, you remember what the angels say? O oh, men of Galilee, why are you staring up? Galilee is where he has invested himself and committed himself and has spent the majority of his time ministering. That's because Galilee is, is, has been strategic for the Lord's ministry. Galilee is more heavily populated than Judea. Galilee is where mo- most of the common people live. Fishermen, farmers, these would be the majority of the people who, who lived in Galilee. It's the, 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 uh, they were called the people of the land. And I, I have to apologize because I pronounced it incorrectly the last time I said this. It is the Amharits, the people of the land, the, 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 the people of dirt. They are predominantly up in Galilee. They were the common people. And it is estimated that around the Sea of Galilee alone, which really, it it sits in the nexus, it's in the hub, it's smack in the middle of Galilee. Galilee itself being about 50 to 60 miles up and down and about 30 miles north, um, left to right. The Sea of Galilee is smack in the middle. And it was estimated there was about 2 million people who lived in the cities and villages orbiting, circling this, that little body of water. It was about half to two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. Two million people around that little lake. So it was strategic because there was, it was strategic for Jesus' ministry because there were more people there. But also, Galilee was easier to traverse. There was a, a major trade route that went through Galilee. It was called the, the Via Marie, the Way of the Sea. And there was, a, there was a major trade route that went through Judea as well, the way of the king. But you know what geological feature you find when you go to Judea and Jerusalem? Do you know why they, why they call it going up to Jerusalem? Why do you think that is? Because Jerusalem is up there. It doesn't matter if you are north of Jerusalem. When you, when you travel south to Jerusalem, you're still going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, Judea is much more hilly, has more valleys to climb up, more, uh, more valleys to, uh, and ridges to climb up, more valleys to descend down into. It's harder on the knees. And you have to remember, Jesus and the disciples, they don't have a car. 
They don't have a tour bus. They're, everywhere they're going, they're going on foot. Now, I guarantee you, if, if, if you were to walk or, you know, I'll be fair. I'll, let's say you can use a bicycle. You try trekking up to North Bend or Snoqualmie. You're going to go about eight, nine miles before things start to get really, really hard. You know why? What, what's about eight miles that way? You go up. So Judah was far more hilly, far less acceptable, uh, accessible. It's up on a hill. It was less, Judea was less accessible to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles predominantly would travel through Galilee, which was fine for the Jews in Judea anyway. They don't, they don't want the Gentiles there. That was fine with the Jews. And it was said that Jerusalem was on the road to nowhere. Galilee was on the road to everywhere. And everywhere aptly describes Jesus' movements. Since day one, Jesus has been going hither and thither, up, down, left, right, everywhere, absolutely everywhere. He has gone to specific encounters. He has gone on circuits. He has gone everywhere, everywhere that there are people to be found, everywhere. Everywhere there are people that can be ministered to, Jesus went there. He and, and, and where, if there are no people where he's at, he goes out and he finds people to minister to. He has crossed land and lake over and over and over and over again to find people to save and to heal and to minister and to show mercy and compassion to. He was rapid and relentless in his compassion to people. Even on the occasions that he would go up on the mountain to pray and to be by himself, we're even told that people would come and look for him and find him out. Even when, even when Jesus is resting in the boat, people wake him up. It's as if the Son of God can't be hidden, like, like a flashlight under a thin sheet. We see that the Son of God has a heart serve and to minister to people wherever they are, whatever their circumstance is. Wherever people are, there he goes. Wherever the opportunity to minister and to serve and to give of himself is, there he goes. Again and again and again, giving of himself relentlessly. We've seen in the last three chapters, we the boat has almost become a character of its own. Jesus is always in the boat. He's, uh, in chapter 4, we saw him get into the boat to, to preach from it. The boat became a pulpit. And then back and forth and back and forth, Jesus would get into the boat because he said that we need to cross to the other side. Back and forth, like a yo-yo, he would cross to the other side. And he'd get out of the boat and he would minister to people and heal people. And then he'd get back into the boat. Why? Because he needs to cross to the other side. Why did the Messiah get, get into the boat? To cross to the other side. Maybe that became the first lame joke. But he's, he's always going to the other side. And if you, it's hard to tell which chapter, what side he's on. Is he on the left or is he on the right? It doesn't matter. He's soon going to cross the other side anyway. And I would, I would have loved to have seen 
Jesus' Waze account. You know what Waze is? Or those GPS trackers? I, 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 I would love to see, I would love to log into Jesus' account and just see the, the whole screen would be highlighted. I, 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 you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at the disciples being sent out when they come back, how they're exhausted? You know why they were exhausted? Because they were trying to keep up with Jesus' pace. I, I, would have, I, I wish that we could have gone back in time and given them all Fitbits and, and see how many steps did they rack up daily, weekly, monthly. I, I, we, I have some friends who do the Fitbit challenge thing with me. And uh, uh, a while back, I had a guy that no matter how many steps I would do, he would always be ten or 20,000 over me. I come to find out he was a Marine, and he'd, re- he'd run like 15 miles a day. No wonder I couldn't keep up with him. But I, I would have loved to have seen the number of steps that the disciples took. I would love to have seen the number of steps, the number of miles that the disciples and that Jesus kept. How many calories did they burn climbing hill after hill, walking mile after mile, rowing mile, nautical mile after nautical mile in the boat? I would hate to have been that one disciple who, who was picked to be the, the, the long-term rower. I don't know if they shifted for rowing responsibility, but the, just the number of, of frequent floater miles they got on the lake. Goodness. Relentless, rapid movement over and over again. Why? Because Jesus is driven to minister to people. He is, he is driven. He has it deep within his core, compassion. He has the eyes of a shepherd. When he looks and he sees people suffering, he is, remember, he is moved deep, deep within. Who can remember that, my favorite Greek word? Thank you. He is moved in his. Thank you. Jesus is moved deep inside. He is moved deep inside because he is full of compassion. He is full of mercy. He is full of pity. And don't don't we aren't we motivated to go the extra mile when we are when we're giving of ourselves to someone that we love when we are serving those that we love. Don't we don't we aren't we a little more hesitant uh, or less likely to complain or gripe or and we're more willing to go that extra mile jesus went many many extra miles because he was full of the selfless love and compassion jesus goes far past the point that normal men stop and rest and that has been mark's point the entire time jesus is not a normal man if you look, look down at verse 55. Jesus doesn't even settle in one place. When he gets out of the boat, Mark doesn't even tell us that Jesus settles in one village, one town, one countryside. He is going to multiple towns, multiple villages, multiple countrysides. These are all in the plural Jesus is going everywhere, every village, every city, every countryside, all in, the, all in the plural. And we've talked about the imperfect tense. He enters into these locations again and again and again. It's an on 
ongoing, repeated action. Why? Because there are people there and elsewhere and somewhere else that need ministering to. So Jesus is driven to keep going and going and going. Relentless, rapid movement of the compassionate Son of God. There is absolutely, undeniably, no shortage of places that he went to. He, where did Jesus go? All the places. Anywhere there was a place to go, he went. We have to ask ourselves, stop here for a second, we have to ask ourselves, is there, is there a principle that we can learn from the Lord Jesus? Can, can we see the drive Can we see his purpose? Can we see his intentionality? Can we see him being driven to give of himself, being driven to serve and to love on people? So we we have to ask ourselves, how can we be like Jesus here? Do do we actively go out? Do Do we actively plan? Do we actively look for opportunities to use our gifts to bless others? Are we actively, are we anticipating, are we hoping for the opportunity that we might give of ourselves to others? Do we use our gifts for the benefit of others or do we use our gifts for the benefit of one, ourselves? Do you go out or do do you passively wait and, and, and respond almost passively to serve someone else? Do you wait until you hear of a need before you go and bless someone? Or do you look for the opportunity to utilize your gifts? Do we float along and only respond when an opportunity is right in our face? Or do we go out and look for people? As disciples of the Lord, we we ought to emulate this relentless, restless movement of of being desiring to give of ourselves for other people. Let me just remind you, we, we looked at this when, when I was back in First Peter about how we have all been given spiritual gifts. You remember that in First Peter chapter 4, that God has blessed the church with a manifold of spiritual gifts? I have been designed to do something that some of you haven't been designed to do. Some of you have been designed to do things that I cannot do. And some of you have been designed and been given the gift and the natural talent to do things that one another cannot do. And I'm reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And so let me ask you this. When it comes to your job, when it comes to your resources, your time, your energy, your money, your relationships, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your children, when it comes to your own mind, your own body, Are you using all of these gifts for the glory of God? Something to think about. That's something we can think about when we examine the relentless, rapid movement of Jesus. He was driven to serve. We can be too. Secondly, when you look at verses 54 to the first half of Verse 56, we see the masses, the masses of people, the multitudes of people that flocked to Jesus. 
Now, no doubt, Jesus is the, the focus. He, he is, he is the, the, the main uh, central attraction on the scene, but he's not the active participant. He's not the active player in Mark's narratives. And by that I mean Jesus, it, the, 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 the verbs, the active verbs are not ascribed to Jesus doing something. Who is doing the things? Who's going and doing in verses 54 to 56? The people. The people are doing the going and the doing. And this speaks to the, when, when you look at this, this speaks to the utter and sheer magnetism. This looks to the force with which people are drawn to Jesus. At the drop of a hat, all the people everywhere, they stop whatever it is that they're doing and they go to Jesus. Or, or if they have a loved one, if they have a friend or a family or perhaps a servant or a neighbor who is sick and they are unable to get to Jesus on their own, they go and they put that person on a pallet and they are hiking that person, they are trucking that person to Jesus wherever he is. Whatever job they were doing, whatever task they had, whatever was on their plate at the moment, it doesn't matter anymore. It can't compete. It can't compare with Jesus. This is, this is a rapid response of the people. It, it is almost a, an impulsive, almost a thoughtless reaction of the people. And to, to demonstrate, to, to emphasize just how quickly the people move, Mark uses this past tense form of the verb that it, it's not ongoing, it's done, and now we're moving on. The people... The people, uh, Jesus gets out of the boat. The people see Jesus. They're already gone. They have already, they're already halfway to their house. They're already halfway to their neighbor's house. They're already halfway to their family's house getting their loved ones to take to Jesus. In the, in the blink of an eye, they're already gone. With the exception of Nazareth, it, this, is, this has been the norm, uh, granted, in uh, the later part of his ministry, it's probably more expansive the more the report of Jesus went out. But, but this kind of chaotic frenzy has been the norm for Jesus throughout his ministry. This furious frenzy, this, this, this fast, frantic flurry of people with real human needs. It's like a beehive when it's struck. You, you bang a beehive, how, how many of the bees are now moving about agitated? Some of them, a couple of them, all of them. They see Jesus and every single person is on the move. Verse 55, the uh, second half tells us that people are going to wherever they heard he was and they're carrying people with him now beloved sometimes we're we're we like to pat ourselves on the back just because we got to church on time these people are carrying people and they're booking it they recognize jesus they run instantly and then for the rest of the verse or for, for the rest of the passage the imperfect tense dominates the whole flow of thought. The, the each ver- and by that I mean each verb that we hit is repetitive. Each verb 
is going on and on and over and over and over again, eventually until it's completed. And because it's not completed, it's, it's happening over and over and over again. That's, that, that's what the imperfect means. And this just speaks to the massive scale of movement. My, my wife was in a, did logistics for a, a rather large company. And th- this indicates a logistical nightmare, a co- coordinated chaos, massive throngs of people, some of them showing up to where Jesus is, perhaps many of them, perhaps most of them showing up, oh, sorry, Jesus is already gone. Now they're going to go to the next place. Logistical nightmare. And I wonder, I, I ask myself as I, as I studied this, how long did verses 55 and verse 56 take to happen? Was this a day? Was this multiple days? Was this a week? Multiple weeks? Was this a month? We don't know. But Mark is emphatic that there is no shortage of places that Jesus did not go. There was, there was, not, there was no quarter that he did not visit. As, as it said, there was no stone left unturned. And beloved, I've been to Israel. If there's one thing I can tell you, there are a couple stones here and there. You're smiling, you know. They're everywhere. No stone left unturned. Jesus visited and sought out and went to every collection of dwellings, large and small. He went everywhere. This is, this is an exhaustive survey of the area of Gennesaret. The, basically, the, the whole plot of land on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went everywhere. And verse 56 tells us that Verse 56 tells us that they laid the sick in the marketplace. Where's the marketplace? The marketplace is the open, accessible part of town. It's usually located somewhere uh, in the center or near the center. Uh, Children are often uh, being uh, um, referred to as playing. It's a place where children could play. It's a place where day laborers could sit idly as they're waiting to pick up work. It was a place of commerce. It was a place for news to be shared, for info to spread. It, it was a, being this, this uh, naturally open and accessible place, it, it provided a natural opportunity for masses of people to be brought to Jesus. It made Jesus accessible to the masses of people, some of them, many of them being on beds and pallets. Look at verse 56. When, when they were brought to the right place where Jesus was, and as Jesus enters, what do they do? What, 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 what verb do the people do? They impl- they're imploring him. We, we've seen this verb before. This is the same verb that the demoniac did. They, he, remember, he pleaded, he implored Jesus to not send him into the abyss. It's the same word that Jairus used. He implored him, please come and heal my daughter. It's the same word that the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years used. It's the word that everyone uses when they come and fall down at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, please, please help me. 
And it says that, Mark says that they were imploring him again and again and again, imperfect, over and over and over. And what were they pleading? That they might just touch the hem of his robe. Where have we heard that before? Hmm? What, what incident have we seen someone just hoping that they could just touch the hem of Jesus' robe? The corner of his cloak. Right. You think maybe the news got out that Jesus had the power to heal a disease that 12 years of expensive medical care couldn't even touch? You think word got out? You think news spread that Jesus can heal what nobody else can? Jesus could heal the impossible. People heard this. And like the woman with the hemorrhage, these people had an imperfect faith. They had a flawed faith. They're obsessed. They're focusing not on getting to Jesus himself, but on just touching his clothes as an extension of him. It says that he touched the he- that they, they wanted to just touch the fringe of his cloak. The word really is the word for a tassel. This speaks to the tassels that Numbers 15, that the law uh, prescribed for the men of Israel, the sons of Israel to wear. They, w- they were to have a blue cord a blue tassel on each of the four corners of their robe, and it was to remind them of the law of God. Simply, and this basically functioned like a dress code. By, by wearing these and seeing these on one another, they would remember that they were a set-apart people. They had a covenant with a God that the, that the Gentiles didn't have. It was supposed to remind them that they were set apart. And so... The people are just looking at that. They just want to touch the hem, the, 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 the tassel. They don't want to touch him. They don't want to spend time with him. They just want to touch the hem of his robe. They don't need to talk to him. They don't need to distract him. They don't need him to talk to them. They just want to, they want just to touch. Just to touch. Now, what do you think Jesus wants from them? Do you think Jesus the compassionate God-man, do you think he is content with people just wanting, up, just, just wanting to come up to him and touch him like, like he's some supernatural oil or ointment? They can get their fix and then move on. Do you think the Son of God, who has the heart of a shepherd, do you think that's what he wants? Do you think the man who's, who is full of compassion and divine love, do you think he's content to just be used by people? What does Jesus want from men? Starts with F. Faith. Sounds like faith. Sounds a lot like faith. Yeah, Jesus is Jesus is calling for faith. He is desiring for faith, for trust, for for men to have confidence in Him. And we have seen this. We've seen this in in chapter two. Remember the paralytic. Remember the paralytic that is brought in on a on a, on a cot on a on a. Um, on a stretcher by his friends, in chapter 2, verse 5, Mark says, seeing their faith. Remember, their faith went through the roof. In, verse, in chapter 5, we see the, him responding compassionately to the woman with the hemorrhage. He says in chapter 5, verse 30, 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. And to Jairus, he, he 
gives as a command in verse 36, continue believing, be believing, have faith. That's what he wants from people. Now, this, is, this passage gives us a little bit of an interpretive challenge because we aren't told the spiritual condition of the masses. Mark doesn't comment, which, I mean, how could he? There's thousands and thousands of people from different villages and towns and countrysides. This is extra challenging because the way Mark concludes this verse, if you look at the very end of, of verse 56, it says they were being made well. It's the same word for saved. Mark says they, as many as touched him, whoever came to him and touched him were being saved or made well. And that's a challenge to interpret. Were they being saved physically or were they being saved spiritually? We're going to address that in the third point. Some may have, most probably were not. And and you'll see in, in upcoming texts that Jesus has some very harsh words for those who will reject him. I'm not going to take Carl's thunder away from him. I'll let him preach that. Yet we see that they flocked to him. We see that the masses flocked to him with their needs. They flocked to him. They thronged to him with their sufferings. What can we learn from the the people, from the masses, from the multitudes? Well, there's a positive lesson to learn and 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 a warning that we can glean that The positive will conclude our second point, and the warning will comprise the third point. Positively, it is commendable that they sought out Jesus. You you look at the fervor, you look at the haste with which they went to get people to bring to Jesus, and that is commendable. On some level, on some level, in some way, they had faith in him. It may not have been abiding faith. It may not have been saving faith. But on some level, they had some kind of belief in him. It cannot be said that they, did not, that they doubted his power. You, whatever their eternal state, you can't deny the people believed Jesus had supernatural power. That, that they were looking to Jesus and and this, is, this seems to be a lesson that his disciples have a hard time grasping. You remember how Carl concluded his sermon last week? What did Mark comment about the disciples? Did they learn the lesson from the loaves? What was that, Kelly? There, look at that. It's not, it's not that far. Just a couple verses up. Verse 52. They had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, Their hearts were hardened. Remember, before Jesus fed the crowds, he gave them, he gave the 12 an opportunity to, to, he told them to do something about the crowds. I don't know if if they had the power to do the, the, the miraculous feeding themselves. At the very least, by now, they should have learned, maybe we should look to Jesus to solve our problems. Maybe we should ask Jesus to help us out and said they did absolutely nothing. Like a cow staring into an oncoming train, they just stood there doing nothing. 
And then we saw Jesus miraculously provide food, enough food for a stadium from five little wafers, five little crackers. These, these weren't those $1.99 delicious, soft, fluffy French bread rolls over at IGA. These were little things, five of them. And two fish fed 25,000 people. And the disciples themselves, remember, they saw what was brought to Jesus. They saw him distribute the crackers and the wafers. And, oh, there's another wafer. Oh, there's more wafers. Oh, there's more fish. More and more and more. And they, each disciple picked up a basket of the leftovers. They felt the weight of the effects of his power. You'd think by now they would learn to look to Jesus for solutions but they didn't but the people did on some level that's commendable and it's commendable that they moved mountains to go get people and to bring them to jesus can't we do the same can we show a fraction of the zeal and bring loved ones invite loved ones invite neighbors invite friends family co-workers and bring them to jesus where whether in evangelical discussions that are personal and private or, or bringing them to church let carl and i do do the evangelizing just bring them to church but can we have a fraction of that zeal can we have a portion of that zeal to bring people to jesus that that they that they at least have the faith and the desire to come to jesus and to bring people with them that's commendable And they saw, they knew that Jesus could make right many, many wrongs. So I ask, who who can you bring? Who can you bring? Who has needs? Who, who, Who has a life and a circumstance that needs to be touched by the Son of God? Do you know anybody? And beloved, do you? Do you have something in your life that needs to be touched by the Son of God? Have you seen anything that Jesus is unable to make right? Have you seen any problem too great for Jesus? Do any of you have something in your life, some problem that you have yet to lay down before his feet? Some problem that you have yet to plead, to implore, Jesus, please help me with this. Please make this right. He may not give you the the outcome that you want, but he will always, always do what is right. I love how Peter concludes uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter. we, We ought to always entrust ourselves to a faithful creator who does what is right. So it's commendable that these people sought out and came to Jesus. That's the positive lesson. The negative? We see that in light of the magnitude of his miracles. In light of his miracles. The, that's the third point. And, the, and what 50, with, it is what 56 concludes with. The magnitude, the undeniability of his miracles. As many as touched it, the the hems of his robe, as many as touched him were healed. In other words, 
everybody who came to Jesus, no matter what their problem was, no matter what their disease was, their illness was, their disability, whatever their problem was, Jesus made it right. They were healed. Their circumstance was healed. Now, why, why is this a warning to us? Well, remember that with greater accountability, with greater revelation, with greater light comes greater accountability. And there will be a greater accountability for these people who have been exposed to all of this light, all of this revelation, all of this evidence, and yet we'll see in the coming chapters that many of them will leave him. Many of him will ultimately reject him. And beloved, as many of you have grown up in the church, whether this church, some other church, many of you have grown up in or near Christianity. And you have to know that proximity to Jesus is not enough. Being close to the Lord, being close to his church, being near him, being able to touch him, being touched by him, being healed physically by him. Being near to him and close to him on some external level. Being comforted by him. Having your suffering alleviated by him. Being blessed by the fellowship of people who belong to him. That is not enough. Those things cannot be a substitute for faith. For real faith. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What does it profit you if your leprosy has been cleansed, but your heart has not changed? What does it profit you if your blindness has been turned into sight and yet you're lost? What does it profit you if if your suffering has been taken away, but you are still at enmity with God and you Die in your sins. A man by the name of Harry Sweet says that the scene, that this scene makes it clear that out of the facets of Jesus' ministry, out of his preaching, out of his teaching, out of his healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, casting out demons, feeding the multitudes, the people identified him primarily as the healer. He's, he's somebody who can do things. In other words, in all the clamor to get to Jesus, it's not because they want to worship him. It's not because they want to be taught by the teacher. It's not because they want to be trained and discipled by, by, the, by the master. They don't want to be owned by the good shepherd. They, they want to be touched by the healer. They want the healer to do something. They want something done for themselves. They were eager to profit personally from the physical and material blessings that came with being touched by the healer. Beloved, proximity to Jesus, being close to Jesus, being in his church and having a great attendance is not enough. He calls people he calls men he calls women to be his disciples how are you responding to jesus 
Think about this. There were many. Let, let this hit. There were many who ate those loaves. There were many in Galilee who, who were given their sight, who had their lame legs fixed, and had their mute tongues loosened, and their demons cast out. There were many who received those benefits who will perish in hell. There were many who were physically healed who were not spiritually saved. Beloved, how are you responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls you to follow Jesus? Which calls you to trust and to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How are you responding? Proximity to him is not enough. He said in John 8, 24, if you don't believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Proximity to Jesus isn't enough. Are you in him or not? Sinclair Ferguson said it is entirely possible we see from this text, it is entirely possible to see power, the power and grace of Jesus and to yet have yet hardened hearts. Nearness to him, be you his disciple, be you one in the crowds, be you one of his own family. Nearness to him cannot substitute faith. Proximity to Jesus cannot substitute. It can't be an alternative to a lasting, believing trust in him. Like, and we saw this with Herod just a couple verses ago. It is entirely possible to hear the word of God and yet be darkened and to be hardened by it. So what are you doing with the scripture as we preach it? What are you doing with Jesus? A man by the name of Schlatter, and I had to include this quote just because his name is so wonderful. Schlatter says this. I'm sorry, that's the second quote. James Edwards says, the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. One branch which leads to Jesus' final saving purpose, the other to a false understanding of Jesus simply as a wonder worker. Do you see him as your savior or is he a glorified social worker who can fix things for you? Now to Schlatter. The other one was the former quote. This is the Schlatter quote. In the zeal with which the people brought their sick to Jesus, we recognize not only how deeply the untiring goodness of Jesus touched Israel, but also how distant Israel remained from Jesus because it only sought from him nothing but the healing of its sick. How, beloved, how are you responding to Jesus today? We have seen in this summary the rapid, relentless movement of Jesus. We have seen the masses who have flocked to him because he was so very able 
to right their wrongs. And we can learn from that. But let us also take heed from the warning of his miracles, which nobody could deny, not even his, not even his enemies, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they never denied his miracles because they couldn't be. And in light of everything he did, practically eradicating disease in Palestine during his lifetime, in light of that weight of evidence, let us take heed lest any of us be found not believing. Amen.